The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome back to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is my NBC, MSNBC colleague, Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitale. And she is here to talk about her brand new book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. It's a really good question. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, it's so great to have friend. you. Hello. Happy to join you on this Friday. So what's, what's the reason? What, why, why can't we get a woman to be the president of this country? <laughs> well, look, as, as I often joke, if the answer were so short, this book would be a lot shorter. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That's real. That's real. But um, look, the short answer is misogyny, <laughs> but the longer answer is that structurally, the way we elect presidents, the things that we value in our presidential candidates, they're, they make it really hard for women to thrive and succeed in the system. I think it's it's such an important point to start on um, because I thought I've been thinking about a lot of the same questions uh, that you ask and try to answer in this book. Um, and obviously you had a even closer view to the 2020 election cycle um, than really any anybody else <laughs> um, who has written a book about this, but certainly um, that I had. And, you know, one of the things that I wrote about in my book was that at the end of the 2020 primary, which started out with all of these women, I mean, just like so many, right? Um, there was no woman left. There were two old white guys. And I was like, what is happening? What just happened? Where did mm-hmm. all the women go? Um, so I want to sort of <laughs> go back, take us back to the 2020 primary, because um, you do a lot of great um, analysis of how not just that there were so many women who were in the Democratic primary, but that they were all running in a little bit of a different way, right? Kristen, Kirsten Gillibrand had a different campaign than Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, etc. Can you can you sort of do a little bit of comparisons and talk about some of the different ways that they ran as women? Because they all did it, it differently than Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, who basically, you know, sort of really tried to be like, I'm the most experienced, I, you know, I'm just like kind of a man who could do the job. The women in 2020, they didn't do that. Yeah, and Hillary even went through an evolution, which obviously you know better than mm-hmm. almost anybody out there, <laughs> from 2008 to 2016. And I think in 2020, because of Hillary, the women of 2020 were able to build upon that. That's not to say that they didn't fall into many of the same pitfalls that were frankly invisible until you've fallen into them and you're looking around like, oh, how am I suddenly off of my narrative for something that I didn't even do? Kamala Harris trying on a sparkly jacket during a retail politics trip, like, you know, whatever. There were a million ways you could go wrong even when you thought you were doing it right. But I think what was evidenced by the women in the 2020 field was that if you were Kirsten Gillibrand, you could run and say that I would fight for your kids the way that I fight for mine. 
She had a very family-centric message. If you were Amy Klobuchar, your origin story was based in being a mother and fighting for your community. But largely, Klobuchar did not lean in. She had echoes of Hillary Clinton in the way that she ran, Mm -hmm. or rather didn't run necessarily on gender, by saying that she was just there as someone who was an experienced legislator. And then Elizabeth Warren, you look at the policies that she was prioritizing, things like universal pre-K, they were they were women's issues in that they would predominantly hit women. That's not to say that they wouldn't hit men as well. But at the same time, all of them, Kamala Harris as well then, found different ways of leaning into gender. And I think the thing that many of them had in common is that it was a feature, not a bug to their campaigns. But none of them, of course, were campaigning saying, hey, vote for me, I'm a woman. That was definitely not the pitch. But they all knew they had to strategize around it because everyone was going to talk about it anyway. I mean, it's such an important point because, you know, I remember even the moment at one of the debates, um, you know, where it comes up, like, can a woman win? Because it's it's sort of a question that people would ask, but we don't know the answer because it's never happened. So it, it sort of put all of the women on the defensive for the whole primary because... And that's why I think we did end up with two men, because people were so scared about having another election happen like Hillary Clinton, um, that they went with sort of a, quote, safe choice, safer choice, perceived safe choice. Um, And a lot of that had to do with what other people would do. I mean, talk about how some of it isn't. And and you talk to voters who are following the candidates who are showing up to these campaign rallies throughout the primary. I mean, talk about the people that you spoke to on the ground who you know, express doubt as to whether a woman could win, even if they supported Elizabeth Warren, even if they were showed up to the rally, they were still like, well, we're not sure. Like that was just an open question that sort of followed the women everywhere they went. It followed the women everywhere they went. And then ultimately it manifests on that Iowa debate stage in 2020 between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, where they go back and forth over whether or not Bernie Sanders told Elizabeth Warren at a private dinner that he thought a woman couldn't beat Trump. They both give their very on the record portrayals of what that conversation was and it was a moment of not just saying the quiet part out loud about the role that gender was playing in this primary field but it was also a question of who do we give the benefit of the doubt to when you hear an uncomfortable story like that and for the warren team it was clear to them that even though she was on the record vehemently defending the fact that she as one of two people in this conversation heard bernie sanders say to her that he didn't think a woman could beat trump people still didn't want to believe that that's exactly how it went down. And so it was also a reminder of how we believe women, even when they're standing in front of you saying, this is exactly what happened. But I think that when it comes to Joe Biden being safe or the comfortable or the unrisky choice, it's something that other women who ran in 2020, I'm thinking of Senator Kirsten Gillibrand when she talked to me for this book, those are words that she assigned to Biden as well. And certainly I heard it from voters across the country. And the question that I pose in the book is, Because we've never seen a female president before and because the stakes of 2020 were so high, every Democratic voter just saying, all I want is someone who can beat Trump. That's it. I don't care. Just give me that person. I wonder if we could ever assign those qualities of safe, comfortable and unrisky to anyone other than a moderate, politically white man who manifested in Joe Biden. And the answer is, I don't think that we can, at least not yet, because that's the hurdle that you kind of have to jump over is proving that you can win when really, and you know this because you've worked on tons of campaigns, <laughs> electability is something that actually can't be proven until election night or the morning mm-hmm. after, whenever you have results. That's the only time that you can prove that you're electable. Everything else is who are we giving the benefit of the doubt to? 
And what's clear is that voters are more comfortable giving the benefit of the doubt to men for a whole litany of reasons. And I try to tick through those in the book. So let's dive into that, because that is that's actually where the the heart of this conversation is. And the day I remember the day um, Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the campaign, I was probably the most angry that day. (laughs) And I was the most angry that day, not because I personally was invested in Elizabeth Warren per se as, you know, the nominee or anything like that, Like, because I never I was an analyst during the 2020 election cycle. Yeah. I didn't endorse anybody. That was just not my job or my purview. I was just doing analysis of the campaign and trying really, really hard and being very intentional about the fact that I was not going to weight the mistakes of the women differently than the mistakes of the men. And when people did that around me, I called it out as, you know, a double standard and tried to do the things that I wish I had seen in the media when I was on the campaign. Like I tried to do the things that I would yell at the TV when I was in the headquarters in Brooklyn. That's what I tried to do during the 2020 election cycle is, is sort of be the voice that I felt was missing from the conversation when I was working on the campaign. So in the 2020 election cycle, one of the things I observed is that, you know, Elizabeth Warren not specifying all of the, you know, decimal point math in her um, tax Mm -hmm. plan. But like Bernie was never even asked the question about his the yep. math, like n- never even asked. So talk about how the mistakes are weighted differently um, when it's a woman making them um, in in this context. And also some of the other ways in which the campaigns were covered differently, men versus women. I have there's just like a million examples. I know. I know. Lost my mind. <laughs> there's a million examples because the. I think the way you phrase it is just so perfect because the mistakes were weighted differently. And you think about it from the very beginning of the campaign, the first debate that we saw was then Senator Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden on the issue of busing. It's a, it's an argument that fell apart in the details after the fact. And we can argue the politics of that, right? Because you and I, I think first are political people who look at it through that lens. But immediately after that debate, people were like, Oh my God, this is amazing. If Kamala Harris can do that to a fellow Democrat, imagine what she could do to Donald Trump on the debate stage. Like there was that where it was celebrated for a second. And then people were like, but it feels really icky that Mm. she would go after a rival that way. When really guys have been doing this on the debate stage the whole time. And it's what we require of our candidates, Mm -hmm. because when you have 20 Democrats on a stage, how else are you going to make a decision if they don't start pointing out where they're different? And so the fact that she was dogged by that for so long, I met voters and I detail these conversations who going into the next debate were like, I'm kind of mad at Kamala Harris right Mm. now for what she did to Joe Biden. Mm. And I don't know that I ever necessarily met voters who unmasked went from being like, that was a great moment to show aggression and prosecutorial power to, oh, I'm a little mad at her for doing that. Right. (laughs) And, and, And I think that was an example of even when you're doing the job of a presidential candidate correctly, which is drawing contrast, like you're, you can still be dinged for it. And then Elizabeth Warren had the same double-edged mm-hmm. sword when she went after Mike Bloomberg. So many people in the Democratic Party were like, oh, my God, she just went after Mike Bloomberg. Thank you for saving us from not having Mike Bloomberg. That was something I heard a lot. Mm-hmm. But then other people were saying, well, she's a kamikaze pilot. She couldn't possibly be doing this for her own gain. She has to be tanking everybody else's presidential hopes. And it was like, well, why don't we say that in the same way about men as if it's not mean when men do it? So there's that double-edged sword there. And then the other thing that I go into in this book is 
Healthcare was the issue of the primary. I mean, how many panels on MSNBC did you and mm-hmm. I do together about Medicare for all versus yep. not? And when Warren finally put her plan out for it, and I detail why it was politically problematic for them to have waited as long as they did to do that, because their organizers had been hearing about it when they were door knocking for months and the campaign wasn't ready to give an answer. But when she finally did, she did it in the fashion that, frankly, only Elizabeth Warren could and did, which is to the T of, okay, I'm going to get $500,000 from comprehensive immigration reform. You know, I'm going to get X million dollars from doing this policy change. She laid it out, not just in terms of what it would look like, but also how she would pay for it. And she was excoriated for that. And you compare it to the questions that stopped being asked of Bernie. And I detail an interview that he did at one point with a correspondent then at CNBC about the, the ways that Medicare for all in Bernie's mind would be paid for. And he's asked at one point, well, do you think it's crazy that Elizabeth Warren's trying to pay for it right now? And Bernie's like, no, I don't think it's crazy. But like, it's clear he didn't feel he had to. Whereas Warren, and this is the campaign they were running, and the campaign strategist I talked to will cop to that, was like, no, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. And people acted as if that was, you know, a whole new round of something to be criticized for. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's politics, right? You give something to shoot at, they're going to shoot at it. But she answered the question she was being asked in full detail, which is like, okay, you want to do Medicare for all? How would you do it? And how would you pay for it? She was like, here, this is how I, I did it. Look, it's the kind of thing in the in the political space, uh, media that it frustrates me. It's like, why aren't you telling us your plan? And then you give the plan. And now it's just you gave me a whole bunch of targets to, to you know, and now, you know, to in bad faith in some instances, obviously, from um, people that are opposed to to those policies attack. You, you give me targets to attack. Basically, it's like, give me the information. And then now, now that I have the information, now I have targets. Um and I you actually, meant- I feel like candidates should do that, right? Like, yeah. that's the point. Is yeah, to, that's to the whole point. people what your president Give me the plan. like. Yeah, but, like, it was stunning to me, the people in the primary field who felt that they had to fill in the gaps and the ones who thought they could gloss over it. And by and large, I did feel like the women were coming, and this is not going to surprise you, but, like, more prepared with more answers. I mean, snaps <laughs> like what? I mean, that's it's it's like it's like that all the time, all, everywhere in the world, all the time. Um, you mentioned the <laughs> Bloomberg moment, and I had that written down. And I, you said the word kamikaze, and I had this is true. I had the word murder suicide <laughs> in my um in my notes because in a lot of ways that moment, I still think about that moment. Like some some days, like I'll just be like, remember that moment where she just like ethered <laughs> Michael Bloomberg on a debate stage in the first three minutes of the debate, and then everybody was like in shock. But also, it sort of took her out too, um, because of yeah. just how aggressive it was. Um, but men, like you said, men have been doing that all the time. Can you talk a bit about just how how gendered we were in our analysis, even in twenty twenty? Given the fact that we think we are, we're sort of like woke on these issues, but we're not um, in mm. terms of when the women got aggressive, when they were attacking the male candidates, like how that was covered. Well, I think in terms of the Bloomberg moment, because this is another example of it, and it's part of the reason why I focus on primaries in this book as opposed to general elections, because you know this and most people I think can guess this. Like once you get to a general election, people are pretty tribal, especially in yep. the presidential if you're a Democrat, you're voting for the Democrat. If you're a Republican, you're voting for the Republican. Or if you just can't do that, you're going to stay home. And certainly that's a story that we could tell about 2016 as well. But in the primaries is when we see gender and race really 
tilting the scales against these non-white, non-male candidates. And it's why in writing this book, I was able to focus so much on the primary because you had more women running in one primary than literally ever before in history. And so it really provided this amazing moment and window. But what was clear for all of them, and I would say all of them with the asterisk because Amy Klobuchar was able to do this and not face backlash. But on the debate stage, it was this swirling pot of gender bias because you want your candidates to be fighters. You want your candidates to be on the attack. And then also, it feels different when you see a woman do it. And what many strategists chalked it up to me as is we don't like to see a woman exerting her ambition or exerting her own goals ahead of other men on the stage. That feels somehow foreign to viewers. And so that's a hurdle that I think the women of 2020 were dinged for in real time, whether it was Kamala Harris in the busing moment, Elizabeth Warren and the Bernie Sanders Iowa debate, or later Elizabeth Warren and the Michael Bloomberg debate. Um, the person who was able to avoid this trap was Amy Klobuchar. And I asked her why she thought she was able to draw contrast with people like Bernie Sanders on Medicare mm -hmm. for All, or even Elizabeth Warren. They had a sparring match over health care where, you know, someone likens each other's health care plan to being able to fit on a post-it. I think that's something that Warren said yep. about Klobuchar's plan. Um, and I asked Klobuchar how she was able to do it without it feeling, you know, without it being tagged in the minds of voters as, as a bad thing. And she chalks it up to being from purple Minnesota. Like I'm used to disagreeing with people, but still having to find common ground. Okay. I guess I buy that. She's also good with humor, which is something mm -hmm. that can help female candidates in yep. these spaces. But by and large, when women were actively asserting themselves ahead of their opponents, there was always some kind of recoiling or backlash that was like, wait, why do I feel a little uncomfortable with this? And I think that's where the bias comes in. We have to sit with it. We have to actually um, confront this. Otherwise, we, we're not going to get, we, we're probably not going to get a woman. Um, so one of the things you talk about in the book, which I think is really, really important, um, is this idea and in, in sort of contrast between elevation and election. Um, because yeah. one of the weird things is happening, and, and it's so strange that it's like Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden is a president <laughs> that stands in front of two women to give his State of the Union. Like, that's yeah. wild that we've never seen that before. So talk about the fact that the most the two most powerful women in America are or two most two of the most powerful people in America are women. And yet we're still not sure if they could be elected president of if a woman even or Kamala could be elected president. Yeah, but I think both Harris and Speaker Pelosi represent two different explanations of that question of like mm -hmm. why we haven't had a female president yet. In Pelosi's case, and I detail this in the book, it's the system that we have and the mm -hmm. system that she rose up in. She rose up in a system that you could liken to a parliamentary system, the kinds that we've seen in other countries uh, that have given us female leaders. I'm thinking specifically of Great Britain. I'm thinking specifically of Germany, places that you've seen Angela Merkel, Theresa May, even just in, the, in recent years. They're countries that have crossed that threshold and it's because women, when they are elected to larger bodies and then elevated to the top of those bodies, that's, those are systems that we've seen women be able to do well in. That's not to say that it's not still shocking that we've only had one female speaker of the United States Congress and that it's Nancy Pelosi right now. But nevertheless, if that were our system, we would have President Pelosi or Prime Minister Pelosi, yeah. and this would be a whole different conversation. I would be out of the book. But <laughs> for Kamala Harris, the explanation is 
She was elevated to that role by proxy of being chosen by Joe Biden. Yes, they were elected on a dual ticket, but she was the vice president. And you and I both know that vice presidents are not the things that are sea changing for tickets, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that in the past, Mm -hmm. when women have been chosen as vice presidential candidates, both in the case of Geraldine Ferraro and in Sarah Palin's case, they were sort of chosen in moments where those campaigns were lagging in energy, lagging in polls, and they just kind of threw spaghetti at the wall and they thought, well, a woman would be energizing because it's new and different and maybe the public will react to it. What's different about when Joe Biden chose Kamala Harris is it was done from a place of strength and mm-hmm. it was done from a place of knowing that diversity on the ticket, having a woman, having a woman of color would be an asset, would be a power play, would be politically helpful to him. That's a sign that there is progress being made in this space even if it's not Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket in 2020, it's still having her on the ticket and, and trying to tell the American people, this is an asset. This is going to make me better. I knew I had to do this. And I think that's a sign of progress that we should lean on. I mean, it feels like we're never going to have a cycle ever again without women on the stage. I mean, that's on either side again. of the aisle. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I, I did work for her, so it sounds sort of like, silly for me to say like but credit hillary clinton for all the things that she went yeah. through because she opened the door um as as minyan moore would say she she blazed the trail but you know you sort of get nicked up and burnt up and sort of singed in that process is how she would describe it yeah. um if you're the one that's sort of blazing the trail um let's talk about the republicans in the last few minutes here because um obviously being a a, a woman in the republican side is different um the way that yeah. they their their sort of even permission structure, the way they analyze women who are trying to seek positions of power is completely different. But Liz Cheney, yeah. obviously, she's running for president. I mean, the moment that like they kicked her out of leadership, <laughs> I remember actually being on an editorial call at the time and being like, I think she's going to run for president. Like, I can totally see that. I can see a, constitu- a small constituency for her even. Um, talk about the Republican women and how it's different, how, how, how it's... Um, how they, you know, view their women candidates differently. Like women can be on the stage, but they sort of all know that she's just, she's not going to win. She's just here to make us not look sexist. <laughs> well, I, I, I actually take a different tack, I think, because oh, yeah, go ahead. the way that they campaign, the way they campaign is different, right? It's, it's not, they, they don't campaign gender or identity first. And it's a quaint thing to say because, just because you're not campaigning as a woman or a person of color, you still show up how you show up. Yeah, and like you don't get to decide. You. Right. Yep. Exactly. And you're still cut with the same double-edged sword because you are non-white and non-male. And the biases are at play. However, what's different is that among conservative grassroots voters, and I talked to multiple Republican operatives and strategists about this, specifically ones who want to see more women in this space, and they will say flat out, The grassroots hates gender politics. They don't want to hear you talking about things as a woman. They want to hear you talking about things as a Republican and as a conservative. And it makes sense then why the kinds of women who you typically see rise to the top of Republican politics, especially right now in this pro-Trump era, is people who are so conservative that they are on the fringe of the party policy-wise. And I'm thinking about people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, Sarah Palin, who are almost so to the right that they are trying to prove that just because they are not a white male, they are not going to be uh, politically or policy-wise or ideologically different. 
They're trying to pass that litmus test with a base that hates gender politics and doesn't want you to talk about it, but does kind of want assurances that like, it's not going to seep in here. Um, because when you talk about the mistakes of women being tagged differently among women, I was talking to one Republican strategist who talked about a woman who ran in a North Carolina Senate race in 2020. And she was, despite being very conservative, she was tagged as someone who would be just like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. And it's like, oh, because they're all women, they're all going to just be the exact same. Um, and so there is that knee-jerk reaction on the mm -hmm. Republican side, too, that Republican women have to overcome. But they're about to go through a whole reckoning on this issue. And I think that Liz Cheney is someone who I'm watching closely, not just because I basically live outside the January 6th hearing room as a Hill correspondent, mm -hmm. <laughs> but because she has talked about gender in some fascinating ways where she went up on stage at a Reagan dinner about a month ago now, and she ended one of her speeches by saying something to the effect of, men have been running things for a while now, and it's not going very well. And I was like, oh, so we're here now with Republican women, too. And I think we're about to enter a fascinating period. I'm very excited for this period. You know that is actually, um, it's not verbatim, but it, it, that's a Samantha B joke. Um, Samantha yeah. B, and it, it's a Samantha B joke that she, the joke is that she's citing her therapist. She's like, my therapist has a joke. That's the joke. So my therapist has a joke that, hey, maybe we can just ask men to let us be in charge for 25 years. Just give us 25 years and we, we'll do 25 years. And then if it's not better, if your life is not better after 25 years of women being in charge, we'll give it back. We'll just we'll give it back. It's fine. Um, that's the joke. But like I'll take 25 years. <laughs> listen, I think it's a good deal for everybody involved. I mean, how can I mean, I, I think even in some ways. Many men right now are thinking it would be better <laughs> than what we're currently be living through <laughs> right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, men, you know, obviously, especially the ones that are close to women, you know, obviously respect their mothers. They understand that women can run things. <laughs> they can do it. Um, and also other countries in the world to figure this out way, way, way before us. Ali, it's so great. It was so great to talk to you this morning. This is, I could have talked to you for like three hours about this. Um, so maybe we'll just do it on the other show too, um, in the next yeah. couple of weeks and I'll ask the yeah. rest of my questions. Um, but everybody should get Ali's book. It's electable. And I want to know the answer as to why America hasn't put a woman in the white house yet. So if you want to know the answer to that question, get this book, Ali, thank you so much for being here this morning and please stay safe. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlinette. Check in for new episodes every weekday.